Good morning. Welcome also to those who are joining us in the Fellowship Hall and online today. As we work through these stories of our faith ancestry in the book of Genesis, we'd like to invite you to get into the Word. So if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to Genesis 16. Or if you'd like to borrow a Quest Bible, it's on page 22. The ushers will be walking those Bibles up and down the aisles. So please let them know if you'd like one when they come past. And you're also welcome to use the Bible app on your phone as we unpack these scriptures today. Last week, we heard about how God made a covenant with Abram that made it clear that God is going to be faithful, even though Abram seemed to swing back and forth like a pendulum between distrusting God and trusting God. So from the beginning, we see that God's covenant comes only by His grace. And I think that's one of the most beautiful things about the Bible, that we get to see that people in the Bible make huge mistakes, and God still uses them, which sets the stage well for us. You see, years ago, I had a friend who wanted to know God, and she started coming to church, and Jesus really got a hold of her heart. She started growing. But then one day, she came to me just totally distraught, because in the Bible so far, she'd only read the Gospels, the stories of Jesus and what he did. So, so far, her experiences and growing in faith was, read what Jesus did and try to do it, which is not a bad technique at all. But then one of her friends told her, you can't do that. You can't trust the Bible. It's terrible. And she started to tell stories about murders and incest and all kinds of disturbing things. So my friend came to me and she said, I need you to show me how that isn't true so I can show her. And I said, I can't do that. Those stories are in the Bible. She said, what? You could just see her deflating until I explained, as far as Bible stories go, you can only safely imitate Jesus. Because the rest of the stories in the Bible are about broken human beings like us, who sometimes get things right and sometimes get things really, really wrong. There are plenty of stories in the Bible that no one should ever, ever imitate. <laughs> and sometimes that's the point of them being there. What we're looking for in these stories is not what the people did. That's a total grab bag. What we're looking for is what God did. The story is really about God his faithfulness and how he works in real and sometimes pretty broken situations in people. And this story today about Abram and Sarai and a slave named Hagar is a real doozy. It shows us a lot about who God is. See, God promised Abram in chapter 13 that he'd have as many offspring as the dust of the earth. And Abram believed it, but then the years went by and discouragement set in. You know what that feels like? when you've been waiting and trusting so long that you start to give up hope? Well, that's what's happening when Sarai makes a big mistake. So try to put yourself in her shoes. Abram was 75 when he got this call from the Lord, and Sarai was 65, and then 10 years pass. Can you imagine why she was starting to question what her role was going to be in fulfilling this promise? Her husband was supposed to have thousands of descendants, but she hadn't even given birth to one. Have you ever felt like you're failing God? No pressure there. And Sarai wrestles with this, and she finally comes to the conclusion that God made, meant this promise for Abram. He just must not have meant it for me. And maybe since God can't use me, I should make another way for God to do this. So turn to Genesis 16, 1. It's on page 22 in your Bible. Starting with verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. 
but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Let me tell you, this is a huge mistake. God did not ask her to do that. God never asks us to fulfill his promises for him. What he promises, he will deliver. And when we try to take over and do God's job for him, that never works out well. So why did Sarai believe that God couldn't use her? Because she didn't see how he could possibly do it. She's too old to have a baby. That ship has sailed. For that to happen, it would take a miracle. It would have to be a miracle. Unfortunately, she missed that was the point. The fact that it was something only God could do would be what would make Isaac the child of the promise, the child of God's promise. Now, we're not just talking about a child with promise, like with potential. All children have promise. But this child would be given to make the point that God can be trusted to do what he promises even when we can't see how. The point of this child's birth was to start that kind of relationship with God's people that would span for generations so his people could know and trust that he alone is God and he is faithful to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. So do you see what God's doing here? Already in Genesis, he's teaching us what we need to know about him in order to understand what he's going to do through Jesus. He's laying out the foundation of the gospel that God's saving grace for the world comes by God's gift alone, by his power alone. And it's going to come through the ultimate child of the promise, Jesus, born unbroken into this broken world to heal us. And this promised child will not be born out of any human decision or scheming or bargaining, but purely out of God's gift for us. Now, there's lots of centuries between this story and that one. But this is where we start learning how God works, that he's a God of miracles who keeps his promises, who can be trusted to do what he says he's going to do, even when we continue to mess things up with our doubt. And we clearly do. And speaking of which, let's get back to Sarai's plan to get a child of the promise into the picture for Abram without actually waiting for God to deliver on the promise. Sure, it doesn't surprise you that this ends in disaster, First of all, because Hagar is a slave who has no choice in the matter, which is horrible. Did they really think that God would want to bring the child of the promise into the world this way? Horrible. And secondly, Abraham doesn't challenge this idea at all, which shows that he doesn't seem to believe God is actually going to deliver on the promise either. And then when the slave Hagar gets pregnant, she's prideful about it, which makes Sarai angry. And have you ever noticed how people who are hurting themselves usually end up lashing out and hurting other people? Well, this story is a classic case of that. Sarai feels like a failure because she wasn't able to provide a child, and she uses Hagar, a human being, like a tool. So, of course, when Hagar gets some leverage, some leverage she lashes back at Sarai. And then Sarai gives it back to Hagar, and she's got plenty of venom left over for Abram, too. She says to her husband, "'This is your fault!' How could you have gone through with what I suggested? Because anger isn't always logical, right? <laughs> and in the face of her fury, Abraham tells her, go ahead and make herself feel better by beating Hagar. Nice one, Abram. Sick her on the pregnant woman. Now, this story just defies all reason. 
Because if you believe God is using Hagar to fulfill his promise, how would you dare let your wife beat her? If you don't believe that God would use Hagar to fulfill this promise, why in the world did you go through with that terrible plan in the first place? This whole thing is a hot mess. None of it was what Sarai really wanted, and only now could she see what a horrible, painful mistake it all was. And she's miserable, and she makes everyone around her miserable. Ever been in a situation like that? You see, when we try to work out for ourselves what only God can give us, when we try to give ourselves our own value, our own purpose, our own status by our power and scheming, all that happens is all kinds of sin and chaos get let loose. Jealousy, anger, hatred, cruelty, indifference. What happens when you give up listening for God's voice, for his direction and promise to you to follow your own path instead? Where do you end up? Well, for Hagar, it was the desert. And you can't blame her for wanting to get away, but running alone into the desert is never a good idea. It's pretty easy to die of thirst in the desert. Food is pretty hard to come by, too. So you'd have to imagine she was pretty desperate to feel this was the better option. And now comes my favorite part of this story. God shows up. Our God. The first sign of hope in all this messed up situation. Because remember, Hagar was never meant to be dragged into this. This was not what God had asked Abram and Sarai to do. Hagar is only involved because Sarai thought it was her job to find a way to fulfill God's promise on her own. God's people created this mess for this foreign woman who didn't claim him as her God. And what does God do about it? Your wonderful heavenly father sees this hurting runaway slave and he goes after her. You can turn to page 22, Genesis 16, 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Because Hagar's a straight shooter. She has no idea where she's going. She just knows she's running away. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Now let's pause here a moment. Why would he tell her that? He knew very well she'd gotten a raw deal. But when it all comes down, here's the situation. She's a pregnant woman hundreds of miles away from her homeland, alone in the desert. Would wandering in the desert be a good place for a newborn? I'm sure Hagar already knew what she had to do. But she was mad and hurt, and rightfully so. Have you ever been in that kind of place where you know what you have to do, but you can't get yourself to admit it? This angel is just speaking the truth in love to her. But he doesn't deflate her pride in order to send her back. That's not how God works. What God does for this woman who has been so badly wounded and hurt is to give her back her pride and restore her dignity so that she can go back with hope and with a promise of her own to hold on to. Look at verse 10. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Um, thanks? <laughs> that might not sound like much of a blessing to us. But imagine how it would sound if you were a woman who had always lived in slavery. 
Your son will not be contained by anyone. He'll be a fighter, wild and free, and the future of your family tree will be massive. You can see how she feels and how she responds in verse 13. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. And that is why the well was called Bir Lahairoi, and is still there between Kadesh and Mered. Bir Lahairoi means well of the living God who sees me. Sometimes you just have to know that you've been seen. And God had seen her. He told her that she mattered, that he heard her misery, and he was giving her a hope and a future. She was not the bearer of the child of God's promise, but she was the bearer of her own child, of her own lineage, the beginning of her own story, and that was God's promise to her. That in seeing her, God was handing her back her own story, giving her the dignity his own people had denied her. Because God's people don't always get things right, you know. But this story shows us God's mercy doesn't fail any of them. What a mess, seriously. But God picks up the pieces and he continues both of their stories. And Hagar goes back and she gives birth to Ishmael. And she lives there for 13 years until at age 90, Sarai finally gives birth to Isaac. And the name Isaac means he laughs. Because that's what everyone did when they heard about it. They were so incredulous. Seriously? Wow. Only God's power could make this happen. And that is the point. Just as Jesus would one day say of our salvation, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. But the story's not over yet. Because when Isaac is born, Sarah's jealousy rears its ugly head again, and she banishes Hagar and Ishmael into the desert, this time for good. And Hagar, terrified that she and her son are going to die, sits down to cry, and again, God finds her. Turn to page 28. The story continues in Genesis 21, 17 through 21. An angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What's the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. See, this time God doesn't send her home. He makes her a home. God was faithful to his promise, and he led her again to water in the desert. This is the second well in her story. And next to both of those wells of water, she is seen. And inexplicably, the God of her enemy takes her under his tender protection. Hagar, who was rejected by God's people, is seen by God. Because he is who he is. And he will be who he will be. And his love, his power, his provision are his own. And his compassion is for all who will listen to his voice. We don't get to keep him all to ourselves. Instead, he calls us to be for those who need his promise as well. You see, in this story, we see the hints of God's larger plan. That even as he's setting the foundation, as God is teaching who he is through a relationship with the people of his promise, even there we start to see that ultimately his love and saving power is really going to be meant for all the world, for all who will respond to him 
and faith. And there's a particular reason why I find this story so fascinating, especially for where we are in history right now. Because did you know that it's traditionally accepted that the Muslim world is descended from Ishmael, the son of Hagar and Abram? The son of Abram who came into existence because human beings thought it was up to them to fulfill God's promise for themselves. It's uncanny how this gets right to the heart of the different views of God that we find in Islam and Christianity. You see, both Islam and Christianity believe that God created people and that people turned away from him. Both claim to be children of Abraham, right back to the story right here. Both teach that God sent human messengers and angels to get people to turn back to him. But ultimately, how that happens makes all the difference in the world. I just finished reading an amazing book written by a former Muslim named Nabil Qureshi called No God But One, Allah or Jesus. And as someone who once held both views of God and now puts his trust in Jesus, he has a way of describing the differences that are simple and profound. And he starts by acknowledging both Islam and Christianity know that human beings have fallen away from God and need a cure to our sin sickness. And he writes this in his book, I believe the spiritual realm has this in common with the physical. If we misdiagnose what ails us, the treatment will not work, and we will continue to suffer. Islam dis diagnoses the world with ignorance and offers the remedy of sharia, a law to follow. So they're saying the problem is we just don't know how to live to please God. So the answer is the law. Here's a way to live that will lead to righteousness and life. The Islamic word sharia means the way to water, very meaningful in a desert culture. If you don't walk this way, you will surely perish. Do these things correctly and you'll most likely live. No guarantees, of course. This is the desert, but most likely. So the way to life is a command. Don't stray from the path. And worship is shown by obedience. But Christianity offers a different diagnosis to what ails us. The problem of humanity at its root isn't ignorance, but brokenness. That God in love created humanity to be in relationship with him. But by our sin, we shattered that image. We shattered the relationship between God and between one another. And the cure for being broken isn't information. It's needing someone to fix us. And what we need is nothing less than God himself. We could not see the one who sees us so in love. God came to us. Jesus was born unbroken into the world the way that human beings were meant to be to restore us back into relationship with God. He is the child of God's promise to you. He is the source of living water in a desert world. Qureshi says it this way in his book. According to Islam, the way to paradise is Sharia, a code of laws to follow. Sharia is literally translated the way. And the Christian gospel, the good news is that the way to eternal life is Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. See, it's not about what we can do. It's about what he has done. And that is the point. That's what makes it his promise. And so in Christianity, worship is expressed in love. 
And now here's what's so amazing to me. In this story today, who is it who gets this? Sarai? Nope. Not until the second time around. Sarai is the one who tries to make her own way to God's promise. In this story, it's Hagar who trusts God enough to follow. First back to Sarai's house and then to the source of water because she trusted God's voice. Now, what do you think God is telling us there? I think the story of Hagar is showing us a glimpse of God's bigger plan, that God has not given up on the world. No matter how big a mess it gets to be, his love is bigger, and he is pursuing the hearts of people. He has plans for the redemption of the world to bring all hearts back to his love. And we can see this because eventually Isaac, the child of the promise, led to the line of David from which God sent Jesus. And one day, Jesus wandered into Samaria, a people the Jews did not consider to be God's people, and all alone he encountered another outcast woman by a well. And like Hagar, she was not of the people of Israel. Like Hagar, she was not given dignity or value. Like Hagar, at the well, she met the living God who sees her. And seeing her spiritual hunger and her brokenness that needed the restoration of God's love, in John 4, 21 through 23, Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. You see, God's salvation for us comes from his work alone. It has a source, Jesus, who is the way. But that living water is meant for everyone. The Holy Spirit would be sent to draw us all back to the family of God, not by what we've done, but what God alone has done for us. And that's the point. But the truth is, human nature hasn't changed. We are all still tempted to think it's up to us to accomplish the promise. But those attempts to accomplish the impossible merit of earning eternal life, they only unleash fear and jealousy and anger and bitterness and hatred. The truth is the way to this living water is not from our doing. There's only one who is the way, who finds us where we are, and who shows us the kind of worshipers the Father wants are simply those who seek him and trust him to be enough. You see, the God who sees in Jesus has become seen so that you might see his love is for you and for all the world. So what does that mean for us today? Knowing who God is and knowing his love for the Hagars of the world, we have to ask ourselves, as people of this God, what kind of witnesses will we be? Because Abram and Sarai didn't do much to show the goodness of God. He had to do that all himself. And God clearly didn't give up on Ishmael or Hagar. He provided them with streams in the wilderness. And Jesus saw in the woman at the well the true desire to know who God is. And he told her she's exactly the kind of heart God wants. She was lost but seeking. And he found her. And that's what our Lord does with us. So in this day and time, when the children of Ishmael are deeply conflicted, in the midst of terrorism and violence, 
when more than any other time in history, they are seeking truth as to who God truly is. It's time for us to step it up, to pray that they may see the God who sees them. Did you know that one of the most common ways Muslims come to know Jesus is through Jesus appearing in dreams to them and calling them to himself? See, God is still pursuing. Our God still sees the seeking heart. And how will we, as people who know that grace, respond to those who are seeking it? Will we show who our God really is by our love? So to close, I'd like to share a portion of Nabil's own story from his book. He writes, As a Muslim, the tipping point for me came when I asked God himself to lead me. At the end of my rope, I asked God, whether Allah or Jesus, to guide me through his scripture. I needed his comfort, and I was turning to him. I started by opening the Quran. This was my first time opening it for personal guidance instead of simply reciting memorized portions of it. I realized there was not a single verse in it designed to comfort me while I was hurting. Although there were certainly verses that promised Allah would reward me for doing the right thing, there was nothing that said Allah loves me for who I am or that sought to comfort me despite my failures. The Bible, on the other hand, was overflowing with the comfort of God and his love for me. God spoke to me through Matthew 5, 4, which says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Here there is no condition, no requirement of performance. God comforts those who are mourning. Verse 6 amplified this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Not blessed are the righteous, but blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness as if written for someone like me, someone hurting and just reaching out to God, the Bible spoke to me of God's love. And that is the power of God's word. End quote. He's still the God who sees, who sees Abram and Sarah, Hagar and Ishmael, and you and me. He's the God who loves who in Jesus came to restore us to himself and one another through the promise of the cross. And how will we bear witness to this beautiful God to whom we belong? Will those who are seeking him see his love in us? Let's pray. Father God, we are in awe of the beauty of your character. And you've shown us so many times through your word that only love changes the human heart. That it's your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. And you've shown us that in Jesus Christ and what you've sent him to do for us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to lead our witness too with love. With love that a world needs now more than ever. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.